Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are doing a series, a short series, on the Antichrist, just four messages, actually, and this is number three. And we have always started in 1 John 2, 18, but we're going to go to Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, uh, 1st, 2nd uh, Thessalonians, a bunch of places tonight, so I'm going to have you turn with me. There's an increased interest, of course, in prophetic things right now in our world because of all that's going on in our world, especially with Israel right now and the world's uh, attitude, antipathy toward Israel and therefore toward Christianity also. And there are many voices out there for us to listen to. And so uh, I just want to work on our chronology. If we understand what is going to happen, even though details we may differ on, but basically we have our chronology right about what's going to happen in the future, then we have nothing to fear. We're not uh, worried about uh, this world. God is in control, and he's uh, working things out to his end. And we need to have that confidence. Uh, we are pre-tribulationalists. We believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation, and therefore uh, we will be gone when these things that I'm talking about tonight actually come to pass. Uh, we're premillennialists, therefore, also, and we believe Jesus will return after that great tribulation period and establish his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years, a, a recreation of the Garden of Eden almost, except there will be still some sin there. And we take the Bible literally. We believe these things actually will happen as the Bible describes them. And so as long as uh, we're in that kind of ballpark, uh, sometimes there are small details about some of these things. I'll mention a couple tonight that we can differ, differ among ourselves on. It's not a big deal. But when we have those big items of chronology in order, it sets things right for us. Of course, the question always is these days, are we close then? <laughs> are we close to the rapture? Are we close to these things coming to pass? Yes, we're closer than we were yesterday, as a matter of fact. Maybe, because we don't know for sure that these things would start, say, in, in our lifetime. On the other hand, we're always close. We've been close for 2,000 years because the rapture has been imminent. It could have happened at any time, and had it happened, then these events would have taken place. We like to describe it mostly, I think, as the stage is set, the table is set, we're ready to start the real thing. The curtain is ready to go up. But it's been set before. But boy, when we look around at the world uh, these days, we think, uh, surely we are close. I, I uh, in, in listening to some news items, don't you just love the news these days? Uh, it can excite you, frustrate you, or whatever, you know. Uh, here I'm, I'm uh, uh, looking at the... Uh, uh, our government telling us that we must use certain pronouns. We have to lie about it uh, to describe people. Our military is more concerned with political correctness and gender uh, correctness than, than with uh, military. Our police, you know, my, my sister and son-in-law went to a grocery store down in Atlanta last week and uh, noticed that policemen in their full uniforms were bagging the groceries at the store on every line 
And because, they said, there are so many people come in and grab things and run out the door, that that's their duty now is to stand and bag groceries uh, to guard the doors to a grocery store. Abortion is getting worse than ever. Uh, not only did Kansas and Ohio uh, vote yes on uh, their uh, abortion laws, now we have eight or, eight or nine more states going to do the same thing. And so they, they make abortion legal up to birth. Uh, and so in some states, it's worse than it was under Roe v. Wade. Uh, and state by state, they can make this a law. They voted into law. And so we have that going on. Our schools, you know, transgender kids and don't allow them to tell their parents. The borders, do we have any borders? <laughs> we don't really have any borders. Uh, I read yesterday that when we vote, at the end of next year, there will be 25 million new voters in this country uh, that will change an election. 25 million will come in. The anti-Semitism is amazing in this world right now. Uh, the idea of them being settlers, colonialists, you know, and if we're colonialists, we've taken over somebody's land and we need to be gone. And so they look at Israel and the United States and England and so forth as colonialists. We're in a police state uh, in so many ways. There's a new book out called Controlagarchs. Have you seen that title? Uh, about the, the rich men in this world that control the world. So there's Charles Schwab and Soros, there's Bezos and Buffett and Musk and Gates and Zuckerberg. And these men literally control the world. When you think about it, they control the advertising, they control what you see on the internet, they control all of, the, all of those kinds of things. So we see all these things happening and we say, surely we are close. And maybe we are. I pray that we are, because uh, in that case, uh, maybe we'll see the rapture in our lifetime. This is message number three. In message number two last Sunday night, I didn't finish, if you remember, so I didn't get to the last two points. So I'm incorporating those two points into this outline. So we'll cover those same things in tonight's outline so you'll see them uh, come by. Remember this, that these things that we're looking at are after the rapture. This is the beginning of the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. Three and a half up to the middle point, three and a half then to the end. And we have looked at the rise of the Antichrist up to this middle point. And now we're looking at the reign of the Antichrist in this last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So we're just kind of clicking our way through that chronology. We looked at a peace treaty that he made with Israel that began the tribulation period. It's not the rapture that begins the tribulation. It's that peace treaty that begins that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. He comes as a white a rider on a white horse, as everybody's hero. Uh, he solves problems, and he solves the peace in the world and so forth. And we see a revived Roman Empire because he's a Westerner. He's a Western king. So he comes to power, and in our first points here in the outline, we'll talk about how that exactly happens at that halfway point. All right? So uh, as you have an outline, I, I've tried to... I've tried to reduce it down from, from five to seven. If I couldn't get through five, maybe I can get through three, you know, uh, five to three points, I mean. So uh, notice uh, with these things that I'm going to have you turn to these passages of Scripture. First in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
This, these two chapters in the book of Ezekiel describe the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, this battle of Gog and Magog happens in the tribulation period. There's another battle of Gog and Magog way at the end of the millennium, way down there when Satan is released from being bound for a thousand years and he gathers his people together. That's described as Gog and Magog also, but that's not the one that we're looking at here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are two views as to when this happens, so I'll be fair among good men that, that differ on these. One is that this happens in the middle of the tribulation. The other is that it, it's part of the battle of Armageddon happening toward the end of the tribulation period. It doesn't make a lot of difference when it comes to what's going to happen. Uh, but I take the former view that we're looking at something that's happening in the middle of the tribulation period. So what happens is that the Northern Confederation of Countries, this is the king of the north, and he comes into Israel ready to conquer Israel, do away with Israel, you know, from the river to the sea, as they're saying today, and wipe it out. And we've all... <laughs> We've all been thinking about that, and people talk about that, and talk about uh, Gog and Magog. Sometimes they describe it as Armageddon, and, and that's not exactly right. Uh, but that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen while we're still on this earth. It's going to happen either at the middle of the trib or later. I think it happens right in the middle. Now, as you begin chapter 38 of Ezekiel, you'll find a list of a bunch of names of ancient countries. These were all countries to the north of Israel. There's a little difference of opinion as to what that, that old name may correspond to the modern name may be, but there are some things that we're pretty settled on. Notice verse 2, son of man set your face against Gog and the land of Magog. That's why we call it Gog and Magog. The prince of Rosh, most people do agree that's Russia. Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws. In other words, as you come into the land of Israel, I'm going to stop you, God is saying. When we get down to verse 5, Persia is almost certainly Iran, and Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer is probably Germany, Togarma is probably Turkey. So again, we may differ, some historians do, as to how those names align. But what you notice is all of these are countries that are to the north of Israel, and uh, many of them are basically Islamic, uh, predominantly Islamic. They've wanted to wipe out Israel for a long time, and they will come down into the land to do that. And they are ready even now. Now, Revelation will describe it uh, with 200 million uh, soldiers coming into the land. You can imagine such a battle like that uh, to wipe out Israel. But it doesn't happen. As we go to the end of chapter 38, and of course, again, this is a, this is a high flyover, so understand that. Re you need to read all the way through chapter 38 and 39 sometime. But when that northern confederacy comes into the land of Israel. Stop just a minute and understand. You've got, a, you've got the Antichrist already existing at this time, and he's the king of the West. He's a Westerner. He's made, he's made a covenant with Israel to protect Israel. 
And so he's, he's got this covenant to protect Israel. And now in the middle of this time, here comes this northern confederacy, this huge army coming into Israel to wipe Israel out. And the Antichrist is supposed to be protecting them. Well, when you notice in verse 21 to the end of, of chapter 38, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will bring him to judgment. That is what God is doing to this northern confederacy. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will rain down on him, on his troops, on the many peoples, stones fire and brimstone. In other words, God intervenes in a miraculous way to stop this invasion by the northern army. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And so this battle of Gog and Magog will be put to an end by God himself primarily. And he will do it by miraculous means. Now, I'm going to have to hold your place here and go to your right to the book of the next book is the book of Daniel. And I want you to go to chapter 11 of the book of Daniel because he describes something that happens at this same time also. And so we want to, we want to uh, put the two together. In Daniel chapter 11, toward the end, verse 36 we looked last week at verses 36 to uh, 39 as a description of the Antichrist. And we have here this description of a king that does according to his own will. Uh, he doesn't regard the God of his fathers. Uh, he has, he's a, a God of forces and uh, of foreign gods, verse 39. So here's the Antichrist, and he's come to power. Now look at verse 40, at, at the time of the end, and I'm going to show you, I think, in a minute why that is the middle of the tribulation period, but at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, many ships, he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. Now, there's a little grammatical detail that's important. You see the he shall enter into the countries, verse 40. Beginning of verse 41, he shall enter the glorious land. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries. Verse 43, he shall have power over the treasures. The question is, who is that? Because we've had three personalities here. We've had the king of the west, the Antichrist, the king of the south, and the king of the north. Well, generally, grammatically, we identify the pronoun with its nearest antecedent. And so the he in these verses, 41, 42, 43, all the way to 45, refer to the king of the north. That's the last one mentioned. He comes into the land, just like Ezekiel 38 and 39 are describing. But notice, as, as we go through this, he comes in, verse 42, he stretches out his hand against the countries, even Egypt shall not, he comes all the way through Israel, all the way down to Egypt, and he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Even the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So he comes down into Israel, destroying, and then it says, but news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. Now, 
I agree with those commentators who say that what we do know that Daniel doesn't describe nor Ezekiel is that the Antichrist will have a head that is wounded unto death, right? And that's in the middle of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 13. Uh, he, he's, his head is wounded unto death, but he's healed. And so those commentators say the news that comes back out of the northeast when he's down in Egypt finds out that the one that he had victory over, which was the king of the west, he thought he had victory over him, now he's back to power again. He turns around and comes back to have that final battle, the king of the north coming back up to have battle with the Antichrist himself. And it says, uh, Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, obviously right in Israel. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The Antichrist, with God's help, defeats the king of the north, Gog and Magog. Persia, Russia, Iran, Turkey, all of those that were part of that confederacy is destroyed at this time. And that's what we were reading about in the book of Ezekiel. Now, when does that happen? Well, when you remember, there's no chapter divisions in the in the old manuscripts. So chapter 12, verse one says, at that time, Michael sh shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of his people. And there shall be a time of trouble. We know that that happens in the middle of the tribulation period. It happens in Revelation chapter 12. And so he goes on to describe other events that happen at the middle of the tribulation period. And that must be when this battle of Gog and Magog is taking place. Now quickly go back to Ezekiel real fast. And by the way, if we're right about these things, then we have a winner-take-all scenario. And that is that uh, whoever wins between the king of the north and the king of the west is the king of the world because there's no one else to, that, that can fight against him. And the king of the west is going to win. In Ezekiel 39, you have further description of this fall of the king of the north. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I shall knock the bow out of your hand, left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. So we see the destruction of this. Now here's, here's uh, something that people point out. In, we're in Ezekiel 38. Look at verse 21. Right at the beginning of verse 21, it says, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout my holy mountains. Do you know that often the enemies of God's people are called the sword of the Lord? We have a newspaper we used to read called the sword of the Lord. You know where that phrase comes from? Babylon was the sword of the Lord. Babylon was used of God to bring judgment on Israel when God needed to judge Israel. Called the sword of the Lord. Here, many feel like the sword is actually the Antichrist. That, as we read in Daniel, he's there in the land. He's got to protect Israel. And this northern uh, confederacy is coming against Israel. He uses miraculous means and he uses the Antichrist to destroy the king of the north. 
And when he does, the king of the north is the king of the world. All right, so number one, my point number one here is his rise to power. And if we're right about these chronological things here, then the Antichrist comes to power at the middle of the tribulation period, and there's no one to oppose him. He can do basically what he wants to do. So notice that the next two things that I'm going to point out as the Antichrist now reigns is, number one, he begins to break his ties with everyone that he's, all those ties that he's made. And secondly, he begins to form a course and rule in his empire. He breaks his ties, yes, he's got to break his ties with three different people. First of all, with Israel. Before you leave your Old Testament here uh, and Daniel chapter 9, before we go back to the New Testament, the Second Thessalonians, remember Daniel 9 is the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And uh, all the way back up to verse 24 of Daniel 9, these 70 weeks are determined upon God's people. But we find out that uh, in verse 27, he, this would be the Antichrist, the prince that shall come, mentioned in verse 26, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's where we were last week. Right here at the beginning of the tribulation period, that covenant was signed. It's what started the whole tribulation period. But notice as you read on, verse 27, but in the middle of the week, isn't that what we're talking about? In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Uh-oh. He's allowed Israel to do this. He's protected Israel to allow them to have a, a temple and to have their own sacrifices. Now he's going to put a stop to it. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Now this is where we get the phrase, the abomination of desolation. This is the first place that it's mentioned. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so... What happens now is this abomination of desolation. You're still in Daniel, so go to chapter 12, right at the end of the book, Daniel chapter 12. Remember that I said a few minutes ago, Daniel 12 is the middle of the tribulation period. But look all the way down to verse 11 of Daniel. He says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, that's when he goes into the temple. We're going re to read that in a minute in 2 Thessalonians. He goes in and stops the Jewish worship. And the abomination of desolation is set up. So he comes in. We're going to read it in 2 Thessalonians. He stops that. He sets himself up as God. There shall be 1,290 days. And then in the next verse, 1,235 days. The... the uh, tribulation period is divided into 1260 days, 1260 days. He adds 75 days at the end for when Christ comes back to the earth. So don't let those two things fool you. But of course, what Daniel is saying is all of this is happening at the middle of the tribulation period. So let's go to second Thessalonians in your new Testament. As Paul himself describes to us, this very same thing called the abomination of desolation. I, we could stop at Matthew 24, 15. And remember, we were in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 
where at the beginning, you have the beginning of the tribulation, verse 15, the abomination of desolation, verse 30, the glorious return of Christ, 1, 2, and 3, described in Matthew 24. But now, so we're, we're in the middle where the abomination of desolation takes place. So we, we come to, um, to 2 Thessalonians, the first three verses, he's telling uh, the believers not to think that this has already started. It has not started yet. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, by any means. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now we're going to find out that this king, this rider on a white horse, is actually a man of sin. He's actually a son of perdition. Now, I happen to believe that the falling away that's described in verse 3 is the rapture. But there's differences of opinion of good men on that, so we don't hassle over it. But I happen to think that it is. And the rapture has gone by. The man of sin is revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the abomination of desolation. That's like Antiochus Epiphanes, an Old Testament character who came in and offered a, a statue of Zeus in the altar uh, in Herod's, or, uh, Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. He comes in and does that. So here, the Antichrist himself comes in. Now, now skip down to uh, verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Uh, well, I should stop and say, the verses just before that, there's a restrainer, right? Verse 6, you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. That means the Holy Spirit, of course, is the restrainer, and he's taken out of the way at the rapture. So the rapture has to happen. The Holy Spirit is gone because he dwells in believers and all the believers are gone. And then the Antichrist has his way. And now we come to this time when the, he's gone. And so in verse 9, the coming of, uh, or uh, verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He isn't going to last long. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and all uh, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. And so here is the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God as if he were God. That is the abomination of desolation taking place here. Now, what he's done is he's broken ties with Israel. He promised to protect them for at least seven years, middle of the tribulation. He says, I'm breaking that uh, promise. And he turns on Israel, and he himself begins to persecute Israel in these last three and a half years. And not only that, he breaks ties, notice, with the harlot that is mentioned in Revelation 17, where we're going to go next and then also with that northern confederacy of nations that helped him come to power. So that was, that was a big bite right out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But that's the abomination of desolation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17. 
we'll spend some time here and in Revelation. You notice in big letters in, the, in chapter 17 of your Bible in verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. We have described in the book of Revelation uh, this harlot in chapter 18 and verse 2. He cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a habitation of demons. And... Uh, every prison uh, for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Chapter 14, verse 8, chapter 16, verse 19 refers to this harlot. So a big question becomes, what is that in the book of Revelation, this harlot that is described as Babylon the Great? Well, there are a few views about that, again, from good men who can differ over these things. Uh, one view is that that uh, this is actually the old ancient city of Babylon. And that old city will be rebuilt during, uh, for the middle of the tribulation period and will be the center of commerce in the world. Now, I don't take that view, but I understand, and I know good men who do, and uh, they have their reasons for it. Personally, I just can't see that ancient city of Babylon being rebuilt. Uh, you know, it's not Iraq. Uh, you know, it, but it's in that area. What is out there? It's a desert right now. Uh, and so I don't see it being rebuilt. I take the second view, and that is this is the Roman Catholic Church. Then there's a third view that is it's some new center like Davos or somewhere like that that becomes kind of the economic center of the world. Now, thinking that it's the Roman Catholic Church is an older view, I admit. But, you know, some of those old guys were right about some things. And I, I think they were right about this. I think that the Roman Catholic Church was built on the same thing that ancient Babel was built on, mother-son worship and the seasons and all of those kinds of things. And there's lots of historical data to compare the two. And so when John sees this thing in his day, he calls it Mystery Babylon, but I think he's looking at, the, at Rome itself. Now, that's in the first century. The Roman Catholic Church hasn't, hadn't come to power yet, but he could see these same things happening in his day. That's what I think. So why do I think that? Well, Notice a few things. For example, chapter 17 and verse 6 says, I saw the, maybe I, should I go back to verse 1? Let me go back there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me and saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, the judgment of her, who sits on many waters, that would be over many nations, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We learned last week that the beast is the Antichrist. And this harlot comes to power sitting on the beast. In other words, she comes to power with him. Now, if he's a Western king and he needs a religious 
He needs support from the religious body that's in the West. He gets it, I think, from the Roman church. And so uh, you have that description. Now, down in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Ancient Babylon? I don't think so. But Rome? Absolutely. From the first, cent from the first century on. Go down to chapter 18, because this is going to be a two-chapter description of the destruction of this harlot. Chapter 18, verse 20, notice this verse. Rejoice over her, O heaven, uh, you, uh, you, and you holy, notice the words, apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. What apostles were killed by ancient Babylon? The apostles lived in the first century, and the first century prophets lived there. Verse 24 of chapter 18. In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Chapter 19, verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. I think that's a description of Rome itself. Now, in chapter 17 and verse 12, there's a mention of a cup. And some see that having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. That would be the mass itself, turning the blood of Christ, turning the, the death of Christ into actual blood, the wine turning it into the blood of Christ, and the wafer into the actual body of Christ, and crucifying Christ again every time that that mass is offered. That could be the cup that is mentioned there. So, what has happened here is that this harlot has come to power with the Antichrist and brought all of her compatriots with her. And so, Europe... U.S., South America, all of those places that are infiltrated with Roman Catholicism have come to power with the Antichrist in this first three and a half years. Now he turns on her. As a matter of fact, what you have described in verse 16, chapter 17, verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot. This is the ten-nation confederation that comes to power with the Antichrist, those ten nations. And they will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And as you read chapter 18, a number of times it will say, in one day, she's gone. In one day, she's destroyed. Some type of a bombing, some type of a nuclear blast, some type of something that destroys the whole city, and the whole world looks at it and says, what happened there? I think that's what happens, that they turn on her because they don't need her. We're going to see why in a minute in Revelation chapter 13. They'll have a false prophet who will have his own religion. And you'll have to worship the beast. And we don't need Rome any longer now. We've come to power. So he breaks ties with Israel. He breaks ties with the harlot. And he breaks ties with the confederacy. 
So in chapter 13, or 17, I mean, and verse 13, it said, These are of one mind and will give their power and authority to the beast. So he overcomes them. And rather than going all the way back to Daniel 7:24, in Daniel, when it described the horns on the, on the beast that was Rome, the ten horns, that the little horn comes up and takes over the other horns, destroys three of them, and becomes the king over those horns. So from Daniel and from these places in Revelation, we find that he doesn't even need these ten kings anymore. He doesn't need these ten European nations, the European Union or whoever it might be. He is control of the world. He doesn't need the Catholic Church. He doesn't need the European Union. He doesn't need anything but himself. And so he breaks all ties. Let's go to the last point. So he forms his empire. Now chapter 13 of Revelation. Now the, I think the tribulation period comes to the middle in chapter 11. We could go back there and if you turn to chapter 11 real quickly in verse 2, he's measuring the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem at this time. Something is built there because they offer sacrifices and, and the Antichrist desecrates it. But notice at the end of verse 2, they will tread uh, the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days. 1,260 days, three and a half years. And so this is all happening at the middle of the tribulation period. Chapter 11, 12, and 13 are describing the events at the middle of the tribulation period. Chapter 13 is a description of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and then even the 666 is verse 18 at the end of this chapter. So first of all, he has political control. If you look at, at verse 1, chapter 13, through verse 10, that's what you're seeing. Let me read it. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast, the Antichrist, rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast I saw was like a leper, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, who, who is Satan from chapter 12, gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. He comes, comes to power with Satan's authority. I saw one of his heads as it had been wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. We, looked, we mentioned that when we were looking at, at Daniel chapter 11. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things, blasphemies. He was given authority to continue how long? 42 months for another three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. That would be you and me at that time. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, all the lost people. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. That's a tribulation riddle there. He's going to get the same punishment that he's meeting out. He's going to die with the same punishment that he's making other people die with. Now, secondly, there's religious control. So, again, political control, you see it here. He becomes the king of everything. Well, there's a religious control. So then I saw, verse 11, another beast coming up out of the earth. Notice that the Antichrist comes out of the sea, and the false prophet comes out of the earth. Evidently, that means to come up out of the sea is to come up out of the sea of peoples. He's a populist, as we said last week. He's a, a popular person. But this beast comes up out of the earth. He's a diviner. He's a sorcerer type of person. He comes up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Here's this false prophet making everyone worship the Antichrist. He performs great signs so that he, and, uh, he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth with those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. And by the way, that simply means not every miracle is a miracle from God. And Satan is allowed to work some miracles. And here at this time, uh, he will be allowed to actually work miracles that persuade people. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And, and was, uh, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, stop there, because that's the religious control. Now, you know, what you have here is this beast, and then you have an image. We used to think it was something like Daniel's image that he set up and everybody had to bow down when they heard the music. Maybe it still will be. But with, with today's world the way it is, we just see a lot of ways that these kinds of things can happen. As a matter of fact, the word image is the word icon. You have icons on your phone. And maybe through everyone's phone that they have, they will have to worship this beast through that phone. They'll, they, that phone will know everything about you, everywhere you go, and everything that you do, and whether or not you're worshiping correctly or not. And if you don't have that, you're persecuted till death. And some, there will be some true believers in that day who don't. So we're not sure exactly how that happens, but it happens. And if it turns out to be a big statue again, and everybody can see it on their phone, and everybody can, you know, now it's time to bow down. Uh, it will happen in some way like that. So he has this religious control. It's atheistic. It's new agey. It's an emperor type of worship. He is God, and you must worship this man as God, just like they used to worship uh, Caesar himself. And then lastly, there's economic control. So these amazing verses at the end, chapter, verse 16, he causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, everybody, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. 
that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, how does he do that? There's a lot of ways to do that, too. Uh, an implanted chip in everyone, something that can be read from the forehead or the hand. Maybe that's where the chip is implanted. There have been all kinds of theories as to what this mark of the beast may look like. It's kind of interesting that it, when you go back to the early chapters, chapter 7, you have the 144,000 Jewish people sealed by God. They are true believers, and God puts a mark in their forehead. The word for mark is a different Greek word, but he puts a, a mark in their foreheads. Maybe the Antichrist is imitating what happened to that 144,000, and he puts his own mark on everybody else and says, you've got to worship me through this. You can see this, can't you, that with digital money, that the government controls, you can't go buy anything because you won't have cash. They won't, you, know, you won't have checks. You won't have cash. It's all digital, and they know exactly what you're buying at every moment that you're buying it. And if you're not worshiping correctly, you don't buy and sell. It used, you know, 40 years ago, we, we wanted, I wonder how that can be done. These days, we're, we're seeing it done in some places. I was reading last week that the government in California is putting thermostats in the houses that control the temperature of the houses, and some of the houses in California, the heat got turned off because they were using too much electricity, so the government shut down the heat in somebody's home because they control the thermostats. So we're seeing this kind of thing happening all over the place. Look at chapter 14, and we'll kind of bring this to a close here. Chapter 14 Verse 9, then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Verse 10, hell is real. Verse 10, hell is hot. And verse 11, it's long. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Pretty amazing. You receive this mark, and you're, you cannot be saved. You will end up in hell. And so what is the message? This Antichrist is coming. If it happened now, then you, you cannot receive the mark of this beast. But I think, and I didn't go into this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Paul hints at the fact that if you are so deceived now that you will not be saved before the rapture, you will be deceived in the, in the tribulation. I don't give you much hope for being able to withstand the Antichrist if you miss the rapture and go into the tribulation. And if you receive this mark, you're done. Pretty strong words uh, from, from the Lord himself. So the Antichrist is coming, folks. He's a real person. He's a Westerner. He's a false Christ. But praise the Lord. 
we look for a savior, not a tribulation period. And that's the, the blessed hope of the church, that we will be delivered before all of this. So as we look at our world around us and we see these kinds of things forming and, and we see how they could happen, don't let it, don't let it discourage you. Don't let it uh, scare you. You will be taken out. This bridegroom is not going to let his bride go through that time. He's going to come and deliver his bride and take her home. And that's where we're going. And we have a short time to serve the Lord and do those things that he's called us to do. Let's be busy about those. Okay, stand with me if you will. Let's pray and sing a song as we close our, our service tonight. Father, thank you for uh, these words that we've read. Thank you, Father, for these truths out of Scripture that we try to put in order and try to understand the way you've written them. Help us to do that. Help us to be fair and to be loving about it. But help us, Father, to be confident and secure in what your word says. And we look forward to that day when Jesus Christ will come and take us home. And we pray that it would be soon. But Father, this world is a lost world and people need the Savior. May your people be busy with the gospel until that day happens. So bless us now as we think about these things and sing a song. May you be glorified by what we do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Kent, come and lead us.